I'm saying that to make people realize how small the food world was. Both were the trinity of cooking in the U.S. I mean, Craig Lebon, James Beer, Julia Charles. And I knew them a few months after I was here because there was no food world. Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. This is a 30-minute show dedicated to sharing an inside perspective of the Epicurean world here on Nantucket Island. You will hear from those voices who've helped create and represent this fascinating place. And lastly, we hope to educate on wine, healthy cooking, and the agricultural and sustainable community here on island. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Camille Broderick, host of Camille's Demi Hour. This is a very special show today. Our guest on the show has won 16 James Beard Awards, an Emmy, a Lifetime Achievement Award, is the author of 29 cookbooks, and has been given France's highest civilian award, the Legion of Honor. So I would like to welcome the very respectable and honorable chef Jacques Pepin. Welcome, Monsieur Jacques Pepin. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Glad to be with you. Oh, well, it's a pleasure. And I'd love to talk about your background. Not everybody knows your background. I was fortunate to read your biography and know about your, your upbringing, but I think that's a real key to understanding who you are. You grew up outside of Lyon, France, and you worked with your mother at your family restaurant. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up at the restaurant Le Pelican with your mom? I'll tell you, in the, in the time of the, the Me Too movement, I have 12 restaurants in my family that I can't count in France, and the 12 of them owned by 12 women and run by 12 women. My aunt, cousin, my mother, uh, sister-in-law, niece, my wife even, so yes. Uh, all the restaurants that I've been associated with, basically, were owned by women. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so much for, you know, it's true that in the, in the, in the star restaurant, that is in the Michelin type of restaurant, there are uh, mostly men, I mean, in the one, two, three star restaurant. But, you know, there is only uh, 600 star restaurants in France, three star, two star, one star. And there is about 136,000 restaurants in France. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, often in the psyche of American people, they don't realize that. Um, my, many people in my family in France, even from a family of restaurateurs, have never eaten in a three-star restaurant. Hmm. You know, so it is not. I'm saying that because I have so many friends here. They'll go to France and they eat like five three-star, two two-star. <laughs> no, no. And it's another... Uh, Another load, you know. So this is not really, it is part of French cooking, but not really uh, uh, what people eat at home, you know. Yeah, the heart and soul, the heart and soul. And when you worked in the restaurant, it was very different than what it it is today in the sense that I don't think you had refrigerators. (laughs) No, no, no refrigerator. And this was, you know, only after the war. So, uh, uh, you know, products were scarce. But, I, I mean, I didn't realize it, actually, for me, because for me, this is what the way life was. And, uh, but even when I left home, I left home in 1949 to go into apprenticeship. And uh, I still vaguely remember that at least until the end of 47, 48, we still had some coupons and some rationing and uh, different type of things. So it's not that the war stopped in 1945 and all of a sudden there was plenty of stuff around. There wasn't. So we were in a different way. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, my father would kill me if I throw out a piece of bread. I mean, he never threw a piece of bread. If he threw out a bread, he kissed it first, 
And when he throw it out, he throw it to the chicken anyway. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a different world. And yes, we went to the market every day, and uh, so everything was local, everything was organic. Uh, the, um, the word organic did not exist really, but chemical fertilizer did not exist either. Right. And uh, it's not that it was so beautiful and so forth. I mean, my mother would have loved to have a refrigerator. You know, getting all her stuff every day, peeling, doing it, and starting every day. Uh, because she had a, an ice box, you know. She got a block of ice every day to put her fish, a couple of chicken, and so forth. But then it, you had to finish it by the end of the day, you know. Mm-hmm. It was another way of cooking, another way of uh, handling product. Right. Apparently, you had to be very respectful of your product because yeah. that's very expensive. Ultimate freshness, too. And so you started at an internship in, in Paris at a young age. Was there any other time in your life where... In your youth, you thought your path would go differently out of the culinary profession? Well, you know, uh, you have to realize that when I was a kid, we didn't have the telephone, right? So we didn't have television, and we didn't have radio. So uh, there was no magazine, newspaper. So coming from the family that I was coming from, my father was a cabinet maker by trade, and so was his father, and so was his brother. And then my mother was a, was a cook running a restaurant, so it was basically one or the other. I mean, I had, uh, you know, blinders on my eyes. You know, all I saw was this. I never thought of, uh, that I could be, I don't know, a doctor, a lawyer, or something like that. It was so far away from uh, our life. So in a sense, you know, certainly for a little kid like me, the choice was much easier than now. I mean, we didn't feel entitled and... Uh, able to do anything in the world that people do now and to some, uh, to, uh, you know, at a certain level, it made our life quieter and more tranquil and easier. Less choices sometimes is a little bit, <laughs> a little bit better than knowing that you can take on the world, but your influences from your parents are just so, so impressive, aren't they? Yeah, of course, as I say, not only my mother, but uh, I have an aunt in, in Lyon at a restaurant, another one in Valence, another one in Nantua, all of those places around, what restaurants and so forth. So, you know, those women were pretty uh, formidable women, but it's pretty known in Lyon. Lyon is known for the mother, the mother of Lyon, and the great restaurant of Lyon, even someone as, uh, as male as, as Bocuse, for example, who died, did his apprenticeship at La Mer Brasier, you know, a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was pretty well known in Lyon. So moving ahead in your career, you worked for several heads of state in France. Can you tell us some of the strongest memories from that experience and what you learned the most working in that type of environment, which is totally different than maybe a restaurant? Yes. Well, when I worked with De Gaulle, I mean, I dealt mostly with with Madame De Gaulle. On Monday, I did the menu for the week for them. And if there is special uh, guest and... uh, when I had big guests, like I said, Eisenhower, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, head of state, so it, I dealt with the protocol because there is different things that you have to consider, the length of the menu, if there is any uh, allergy or if there was not allergy at the time, but I mean any uh, thing that people sh- will want to eat according to religion or whatever it may be. And, uh, but otherwise, I would do the menu with Madame, uh, Madame de Gaulle and certainly the, the Sunday menu. I mean, you know, after church on Sunday, they were very devout uh, Catholics, so it was the uh, president, his wife, children, grandchildren, and all that. So at that point, they ate exactly what they wanted. Madame de Gaulle said, I want a leg of lamb. I don't want it too rare because it's no good for the blood of the president or whatever. And uh, I have to add also that uh, that Sunday meal, which was 
to a certain extent, a drop of water in what we spend, uh, I, I had to do a, a special accounting for Madame de Gaulle, and they would pay from their own pocket. That's what their Sunday meal, and it was a question of principle with the president. So you do have to admire that because, as I say, it wasn't that much. In addition, they were not wealthy people. Wow. But it was a question of uh, ethical, you know, so for him. That's fascinating. Isn't it great that you see that those are the memories, the personalities of the people that you took care of? Oh, sure. Yes, yes. Well, if you're just listening, I'm speaking with the legendary chef Jacques Pepin, and we were speaking about his time uh, working for the heads of state in France when he was younger with Charles de Gaulle himself. And then you transitioned to the United States. I don't remember much about why you wanted to come to the U.S. I know you were, had the opportunity to work at Le Pavillon. Yeah, um, Pavillon, I never heard of it. No, <laughs> I never, of course, never heard of the Pavillon. The point is that Why'd you come? The, the America, I mean, the United States was, and still is to a certain extent, you know, it's still the, you know, the, the golden fleece, I mean, you know. The Eldorados, uh, old friend who came to, I knew about jazz and stuff like that, so I said, I want to go to America. And I thought that I would stay here, two years, learn the language a little bit and so forth. So I came on a student boat. You know, it took like 15 days. So I was all student coming back from Europe, and that's how I came. And uh, it was, uh, well, almost 60 years ago. <laughs> I came for a year or two. Does it seem like another life? Well, it was totally different, but it was a great, a great feeling of freedom for me. I mean, when I first came, the day after I arrived in New York in September of 59, uh, I went to the pavilion. And the pavillon, the chef was French there, but he was in his 40 at the time, and uh, he came here when he was 17, 16, 17 or something like that. So uh, he was more American. So I had my certificate of work, and like in France, you go somewhere, you leave all of the certificate, including the one from De Gaulle and all the places that I've been to, people will sign a certificate that testing that you've been there in quality of such and such, which don't really exist here. So he barely didn't even look at it. Okay, you want to start tomorrow? I say, yes, uh, monsieur, you know, I call him monsieur, but he said, no, 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 you call me Pierre and all that. I said, Pierre, Jesus. I mean, that was new for me, it was another world, mm -hmm. uh, a much more, uh, you know, democratic world, if you want. I discovered, yes, another world. I went back to school, you know, in France. It would have been difficult to me to do what I did uh, in the U.S. And, and so forth, and going skiing and doing all kinds of things that I'd never done. If you read your book, you do take advantage of all those times in your life to really experience. And like you said, you went back to school to get your master's, which was also something that is um, very admirable at any age. And so when you were working at Le Pavillon and you ended up having the opportunity to work for either JFK and be his personal chef in the White House or to work with Howard Johnson. And to me, this was one of the most pivotal moments in your book because I felt that you really followed your heart and you simply just said, well, I already had done that job before. It wasn't about the prestige. You really just wanted to continue learning and this other opportunity presented that. Well, I'm not... I'm I don't think I'm that noble. <laughs> so, I don't think it was uh, it was uh, other things as well. Remember, I had been the chef to three presidents in France. I had never been. I mean, radio, of course, television barely existed. But I'd never been on radio. I'd never been on a newspaper. I've never been. Uh, no one uh, ever called you in the dining room for kudo at that. Time. Uh, no one ever came to the kitchen. If anyone came to the kitchen, was to complain about one thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the cook was uh, totally uh, at the lower part of the social scale and uh, not very important at all. To, uh, to be truthful, 
And when I was asked to go to the White House, I had no idea of the potential for publicity or for fame or that type of thing because it did not exist at the time. The cook was really mm-hmm. low. If anyone would ask you, who was the chef at the White House? It was, I know I happen to know that it was a black lady from, uh, from the South. But no one would, would have known about her, no more than they knew about me, too. That's the way it was at the time. So to be truthful, you know, the decision that I took was based on different areas. I, you know, I was going back to school in New York. And to tell you the truth, Howard Johnson was something exciting. Because it was going to be a totally American environment and, uh, and, uh, with American eating habits. And then I would learn about production, marketing, you know, uh, chemistry of food. I had two chemists working with me. I opened La Potagerie when I left Howard Johnson after 10 years on Fifth Avenue, a big volume restaurant called La Potagerie. And then I opened the World Trade Center for Joe Baum, the commissary I set up for the two tower downstairs. And then I was a consultant in the Russian tea room in the, in the 80s. I'm saying all of that to say that I would never have been able to do those jobs right. without the training of Howard Johnson. As a French chef, I didn't know anything about that type of production, marketing, and so forth. Exactly. So again, it was about you chose because you'd learn more, and it, there was more opportunity there. It wasn't for the fame, even if you did know about the fame. <laughs> even if right, you did right. know about the fame. I'm curious if you look back and see how hotel menus and restaurants, even within hotels, how they've become so high profile. And do you feel that your contribution to Howard Johnson and sort of that larger scale, high quality production benefited the present day sort of hotel food scene? No, I mean, the whole thing exploded in different directions. Uh, Woman liberation, organic gardening, health food store, people were looking at what they were eating. And all of a sudden, the interest in wine other thing which really did not exist. People start traveling to Europe. I just happened to be there, to be here <laughs> at the right moment. You know? Right time and place. That's more time more means, than anything else. Yeah, time means everything. And speaking of timing, you had the fortune to work and produce wonderful television with Julia Child. Right. And you won an Emmy for, for that work, Lifetime Achievement Award. And I would love to have a whole show about you and Julia. I mean, your cookbooks are fantastic. I just would love to hear in your own words, your connection with Julia and what it was like when you first met her. I met Julia in 1960, you know, so it was maybe, uh, I don't know, eight months, 10 months after I was here. At the same time, you know, I knew, as I said, the, 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 I met the Trinity of cooking, which was James Beard. Okay, Julia Child and Craig Levon, who had started at the New York Times. And certainly Craig was a bigger influence on me than any of the other two. I'm saying that to make people realize how, how small the food world was. You know, then, I mean, right. both were the trinity of cooking in the U.S. I mean, Craig Levon, James Beard, Julia Child. And I knew them a few months after I was here because there was no food world. In fact, when I went to work for Howard Johnson, Mr. Johnson, you know, was a client of the pavilion. That's how the connection came. Uh, I said, well, if Jacques wants to work for us, he's got to work in a restaurant first to know. So I went on Queens Boulevard there in Regal Park. It was uh, the biggest of the Howard Johnson. I went there, and I worked like four or five months, flipping burger and so forth. Now I got into that kitchen the first time that I am. I was at the pavilion for the first time that I am in a totally American kitchen, where all the kids were black kids. My first experience with American chef, if you want, were all black kids there. It did not exist otherwise. All the people that I knew in New York, all the great restaurants in New York, hotels, so forth, were all French, Italian, Swiss, German, too. I didn't know one 
white American chef <laughs> until uh, the CIA Culinary Institute of America started, and at the end of the 60s, 70s, and the whole thing started to change. And of course, now there are extraordinary, uh, you know, American chefs all over the place. But not at that time. It was under the world. The only one that I knew, as I said, were the, the black American chef, if you want. So, you know, when I knew Julia, no one knew her because it was in 1961, and uh, she just came back from France. She had never had a television show. She didn't start it. She had never done a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was totally unknown. In fact, I met her at my friend Helen McCoy, who was the food editor of McCall, House Beautiful, because she told me, oh, I have a manuscript to show you. And that was the manuscript of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Oh, wow. And the publisher sent her uh, to ask for her opinion. And I said, gee, that's pretty good. So she said, well, the woman is coming to, to New York next week. She's from Pasadena. So uh, do you want to cook for her? I said, absolutely, and that's how I met Julia. <laughs> wow. So you saw the manuscript first. That's incredible. So what was it like when you first met? Did you have laughs immediately? It feels yes, like that's the first yes, thing because, that I'd imagine. Well, first we spoke French. Her yeah. French was better than my English yeah. at the time. I just arrived. And, you know, Julia always said that... Uh, we cook the same way because we started cooking together at the same moment. And, of course, she was 20, 23 years older than me, I believe. But uh, yet, I was in apprenticeship in 1949. Yes, I was 13 years old. And she, was, she went to France in 1949. The style of mm -hmm. cooking, the great chef, and after in the 50s when I was in Paris, we kind of cooked together, <laughs> I mean, the same way. Yeah, you, that's funny how your lives were both parallel yeah. at that time. I'd love to end the show with a few quick questions and see what kind of comes to your mind first. They're, they're very straightforward, so they're not complicated. <laughs> Tell us your ideal dinner party menu from hors d'oeuvres to cheese to dessert. Well, the ideal dinner party is not going to be about the food. It's going to be about the people here. I mean, for me, for six people, either family or dear friend, and the food will depend entirely on what's either in the garden or in the season or at the market that morning or whether I have a hangover or not, or whatever <laughs> I feel. You know, so the, the food is, I'm not going to say that the food will be material. No, but uh, it is not maybe going to, it, it's going to be only part of it. Mm -hmm. And certainly something from close to, from the sea here, if I have like a big fish happen or a farm where I can get maybe a fresh guinea hen or a duck or something like this, and uh, a beautiful garden, like now, beautiful salad in the garden, radish too. So, yeah, that would be part of it. Uh, certainly a piece of cheese at the end, a salad. And uh, if I have a guest, and I'll do a dessert. Otherwise, conventionally, we don't really uh, do much dessert. But dessert will probably be something like a, a simple tart, you know, and uh, which will follow the season. So it's going to be in summer, too. That's going to be a raspberry tart or whatever. And in the fall, it will move to a pear or an apple tart. Your tart recipe is one of the best in your book, just because it's so simple and so classic. It's and just... a lot of wine with it. <laughs> you like champagne, white, red, all of it? Oh, yes, all of it. <laughs> in any order. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I like to start with a champagne, right? Yeah. If you're just listening, I'm speaking with Chef Jacques Pepin, the legendary chef from France who has been in the United States since her mid-20s. What about advice for home cooks? What are two things that you think a cook must be able to do in their kitchen? Well, I think that people should do what they, 
what they know how to do, what they like to do. I think that equipment is important. You should have a good board. You should have good light. You should have nice music in the kitchen, uh, you know, a couple of good paths. All of that helps. Quality of ingredient and simplicity of recipe, you know. If you go, I mean, often people tell me, oh, I don't know how to cook. What do you think I should do? I say, well, do you have a friend who knows how to cook? Next time you go to, to him or her, go an hour ahead, bring a bottle of wine, and cook with him or her. By the time you have your third glass of wine, uh, even if the chicken is a bit burned, who cares? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's Julia relax. for you. Yes, you have to be happy, <laughs> relax, enjoy the food, doing it for the, the pleasure of it. I mean, you cannot cook indifferently, you know, so you put some of yourself in it. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to uh, kind of astonish people each time or whatever. No. You know, I will go to a restaurant over and over again because they're doing an extraordinary uh, veal shop or, or whatever it may be. Uh, and I want that same one. I don't want to be your priceless. Right. And so what do you think? I mean, you're incredible health for, for your age. What do you think the secret to good health is? Oh, the secret of good health, you know, to... to uh, I think, Juliet, you used to say something like that. You know, you have to eat with gusto and you have to drink with gusto, for that matter, and cook. And that's why when you, you know, you put a piece of butter in something, but oh my God, a piece of butter, what am I going to do? I'm going to. So, you know, if you don't want to eat something because there is something in it that you don't like, then don't. Otherwise, you're not going to digest it the right way, you know. So you have to cook with gusto and eat with gusto and happiness. I don't think, you know, for me, the big thing is to avoid processed food or stuff like this. I don't think there is any product which are bad for you, except uh, when you cannot recognize it. You have some type of processed food, some powder. So, yes, <laughs> avoid that type of thing, you know, processed food. So um, to end the show, I do want to talk about the importance of healthy cooking and how you're trying to share your culinary education through the Jacques Pepin Foundation that you created a couple of years ago. If you feel that you need to leave something to the next generation, to your grandchildren, I know you've written your recent cookbook is with your granddaughter in the kitchen. What do you want to share and what do you want this foundation to represent for the future? What I wanted to do, you know, is to give a chance to disenfranchised people. We work our foundation with different organizations like we did that thing last week with the Rhode Island Food Bank. We did something in the in Boston, which usually take care of disenfranchised people. That is certainly important for us are, you know, homeless people, homeless people, people coming out of jail, which have been traumatized, people coming out of the army for one reason or another who have been traumatized. So, you know, it's to teach them with the technique that I know, the basic technique and so forth, to take those basic techniques so that you can a bit redeem your life and make yourself proud and make yourself happy, again, cooking. So it's not to go cook at, uh, at Perse or, or Daniel Boulou in New York or a great restaurant, but it's to uh, change your life and, uh, and make it happy again. So. All right. So one last question. You've been very generous with your time. Is there anything that you feel that you would like to do that you haven't done in your life? I probably would have loved to play the piano, you know. I listened to it for hours and hours, so yes, playing the piano would have been... But you know, interestingly enough, the stove in the kitchen, we call the piano. Oh, really? And when we play the piano, we we work the stove. So (laughs) I did play the piano, so... You did. Well, my father is a classical pianist, and it was... It was a gift to grow up with music in, in the house. Oh, I'm sure. To, yes. to play any instrument is uh, is yeah. a gift. But like you said, you, you play the stove. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. It's true pleasure, honor to speak with you today, Mr. Thank Jacques Pepin. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. Tune in every weekend, Saturday and Sunday at 12.35 p.m. Cheers. Come on.